Hello, everybody, and welcome to Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century. I'm Dr. Marsha Mount Shoup. And I'm Coach John Shoup. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. John and I met in a religion class in Oxford, England. Actually, we were in a pub. Well, yeah, but my point is you like to think deeply. And you love sports. I do. Marsha doesn't just love sports. She's a cross-country coach and in her alma mater's Hall of Fame. We're Team Shoup. And we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On this show, we go beyond sound bites and highlight reels. We're going deep. Let's do this. Welcome to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century. We're here in West Lafayette's public radio studio with WBAA. Today, we're going deep on issues of sports justice with three expert guests joining us in studio from all over the country. A retired North Carolina Supreme Court Justice, a filmmaker from Los Angeles, California, and social worker from Chicago, Illinois. All our guests are tireless advocates for sports reform and players' rights. First, I want to introduce Natalie Graves. Natalie is a licensed clinical social worker and a certified alcohol and drug counselor. She has a private practice specializing in athletes' mental health and wellness, and she's also the founder and president of the One in Four Project. This organization is comprised of social workers focused on bringing awareness of mental health and wellness to the sport community. Welcome, Natalie. Hello. And Bob Orr. Justice Bob Orr is a retired North Carolina Supreme Court Justice and is now of counsel with Campbell Shatley in Asheville, North Carolina. Justice Orr represents college athletes in NCAA matters across the country and is an advocate for sports reform. We met him during our time at UNC in Chapel Hill. Welcome, Bob. John, Marsha, it's great to be with you. And another Bob is here all the way from Los Angeles, California. Bob DeMars is an award-winning filmmaker with over a decade of experience producing, writing, and directing. In 2009, Bob produced his first documentary, Adjust Your Color, The Truth of Petey Green, which was narrated by Don Cheadle. The film was distributed by PBS's Independent Lens and went on to win the program's Audience Award for the year. Bob received his degree from USC's Marshall School of Business and the USC Film School. He's a former USC football player and the creator of the documentary The Business of Amateurs. Bob is here in town in West Lafayette for a screening of his film at the Lafayette Theater. Welcome, Bob. Hey, John and Marsha. Thanks for having me on the show. Let's start with the lightning round opening. Bob Orr, we'll start with you. But quickly, what's the most pressing justice issue in collegiate sports today? John, I told you that was a tough question to start with, but I think I'd say that the most pressing justice issue is the moral failure of education leadership around the country to step up and be strong advocates for the best interest of the young men and women playing college sports. Amen. It's about the players. Natalie Graves. I would say um, 
probably student athletes not being prepared for life after sport. Mm. Something we don't talk about a lot. Well, we need to today for sure. And Bob DeMars, what's the most pressing justice issue in collegiate sports today? Uh, I mean, I think there's a lot of topics, obviously, the financial, academic, and medical rights um, to student athletes. And I definitely agree with Bob Orr regarding academic integrity. Uh, but I feel at the forefront right now, it's really head injuries, concussion, subconcussions, um, and education on CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Amen. amen. These are all, I, I give an amen to all three of you. So each of you spends a lot of time advocating for justice in collegiate sports. Talk to us a little bit about a turning point. What, when did you become an activist for reform? Let's start with you, Bob DeMars. How did you get this focus in your life? Uh, you know, it's probably about five years after I started playing that I started knowing that, you know, noticing that my knees and my shoulders and my back, I had a lot of injuries that lingered after I was done playing. And I started to question whether the long-term repercussions of my injuries were going to one day outweigh the financial benefits of my free education. Um, and then about five years after that, uh, a guy named Scott Ross was living on my couch. He was the linebacker next to Junior Seau at USC. And he became a close friend. And at the age of 39, he was diagnosed with dementia. And he had just lost his job, and his life was spiraling out of control. And it really made me start to look at um, the sport a lot, a lot differently because here was a guy that was basically a, a god in people's eyes. This guy would mm -hmm. come out and do things that you, people couldn't imagine, and he would give up his body. Mm -hmm. And here he is, a shell of his former self. Mm -hmm. And it really made me start to you know, start researching into a lot of the topics we're talking about today. And it seems you've been on quite a journey since then, Bob. Um, so that focus has really informed your life from, from there. Natalie, what about you? Um, can you talk about when you became an activist for reform? Yeah, for me, um, it was kind of embedded in my studies uh, in grad school as a social worker. Um, for, for us as social workers, part of our um, code of ethics is social justice. So for me, it was really natural. And once I started a practice working with athletes, it was just really natural to just merge into that. Mm -hmm. So it came from a long time commitment and also just the way you were trained. Absolutely. Bob Orr, talk to us about your activist awakening. When did you get this focus in your life? I think I know part of the answer to that question. Well, yeah, absolutely. It involved a young football player at UNC named Devin Ramsey, who uh, you and John are, are, are close to. And I, I would have to confess, though, I, I was part of the problem. I was one of those <laughs> fanatical supporters of college athletics and my alma mater, UNC. And then in 2010, there was uh, this NCAA uh Get grouping of issues that, that cropped up, and all of a sudden, this one particular uh, player, Devin Ramsey, was found guilty of academic fraud and banned from any further collegiate athletic ability. And uh, I read a story about his, his mother driving down from New Jersey and saying, you know, this, this just couldn't be correct. This can't be happening to my son. So I reached out to, to Sharon Lee, Devin's mother, and we had a meeting in Chapel Hill. And when, when I found out about what had happened, the process or lack of process, frankly, I was horrified. Now, you got to remember, I'd been a lawyer for almost 40 years. I'd spent 10 years on the state Supreme Court. And 
uh, as Sharon said, you know, it's bad enough that he can't play football, but he is permanently tarred with having been guilty of academic fraud. And it involved a, a three-page sociology paper that he had asked a tutor to review, and the university had submitted that to the NCAA, which turned right around within less than 24 hours and said, oh, he's guilty of academic fraud. There was no investigation. There was no opportunity for Devin to represent himself and say that's not what happened. So, you know, I, I ended up representing Devin. It took us six months to get him cleared completely of any sort of wrongdoing, but by then he had lost the, uh, mm-hmm. that season. And then as I moved forward in representing other athletes, I just became more and more aware of the the way the system worked and I continued to to grow in my opposition to uh, the way the NCAA operates. Yes and of course we were there for a lot of that Um, and it was an awakening for us as well. We were kind of coming to consciousness about it along with you and along with Devin too. That time was a a pivotal turning point for us too. Each of you, some of the points that you mentioned resonate with me as well. Players that I've known and loved suffering from some form of dementia. Uh, Players that I've known and loved being ruled ineligible for no reason at all. And players that I know and love not being prepared for life after school you know, people talk about graduation and getting an education. I've always thought college isn't an education. It's a means to an education, you know, and meeting people and an access to education is going to be something, too, that I think we really need to dig into in the next half. But thank you all so much. And as we head into this first break, we're listening to Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century. We're going deep on issues of sports justice. You can follow this conversation on Twitter at ShoopsGoingDeep or at our website, ShoopsGoingDeep.com. And you can subscribe to our podcast at iTunes and SoundCloud. We'll be back. You're listening to Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century. I'm Dr. Marsha Mount Shoup. And I'm Coach John Shoup, and we're Team Shoup. Welcome back to Going Deep. Sports in the 21st century, we're here with social worker and certified alcohol and drug counselor Natalie Graves from Chicago, Illinois, retired North Carolina Supreme Court Justice Bob Orr, and former University of Southern California football player and filmmaker Bob DeMars. And we're set to go even deeper now on sports justice. Bob Orr, what's your primary focus right now on an issue that you're dealing with, and also what's a feasible resolution that you see regarding that particular issue. <laughs> yeah, now, that's the challenge, John. What What's the resolution? Uh, uh, because I, I, I'm a little bit pessimistic about long-term reform, but 
primarily what I have done over the last several years is represent individual players in uh, issues uh, mainly dealing with eligibility uh, in the NCAA. Uh, and it, it, it's been a real eye-opener. I've developed a good relationship with St. John's University in, in New York, which is a long way from my home in North Carolina. But uh, St. John's has a number of foreign players that play play basketball, and I've represented three of them. The most, most recently, r- really, it was a, a wonderful story. A young man from Mali, which is a West African country, uh, I think the average income is 3000 per family. And he had an opportunity to come to the United States to go to uh, high school. So he comes when he's, when he's 15 and gets a scholarship to St. John's ultimately to play basketball. And all of a sudden the NCAA is trying to, to keep him from playing because they didn't like the guardianship relationship of, of the individual who had essentially uh, made it possible for this young man to come to the United States for what I would consider, you know, a life-changing opportunity to, to get an education and to also play basketball. And, and so um, that's primarily what I've been working on. I'm also involved in uh, a class action lawsuit in North Carolina dealing with educational responsibilities. And while it involves my alma mater, it's not always easy to sue your alma mater, but, you know, you have to be an equal opportunity litigator sometimes. <laughs> um, but it also includes the NCAA. Uh, and the r- most remarkable part of the filings by the NCAA is that they said that they have no responsibility for the education that the young men and women receive once they get to college, mm-hmm. which is a totally absurd perspective. Uh, but, uh, it, you know, what, what's the resolution? What I would like to see is uh, sweeping reform in the context of the kind of education and the scope of education that these young men and women get who are uh, participating in college athletics. Mm-hmm. And, and while some obviously get a good education, a lot don't. Can I ask a follow-up question just about the the thing you mentioned about the NCAA filing about their, you know, they're kind of, they don't have responsibility for education. I know that the NCAA tends to be nefarious tends to do things kind of willy-nilly and not have a, a sort of, you know, kind of consistent corpus of, right. of regulations. But how would that jive with, with the fact that they are the keepers of eligibility <laughs> rules and, well, it, and it, such? It doesn't. It doesn't yes. jive. I mean, okay. and that's the, the insanity of them actually filing in federal court a statement that they have no responsibility. I mean, the one of the issues involving the, the players from Africa dealt with the quality of his high school education. You know, so that the, the NCAA was saying, well, we certainly have, uh, we have authority over as a gatekeeper, so to speak, on educational quality. Uh, and then obviously, as you know, uh, their, their academic requirements and mm-hmm. uh, progress uh, responsibilities as the young men and women enter college. And for the NCAA to say, 
in an attempt to wash their hands of any responsibility for the, the problems we saw at UNC uh, on the academic front uh, is, is just irresponsible. And, mm-hmm. and that's one of the great frustrations, the lack of accountability, the lack of, of candor and transparency mm-hmm. about how, how that works. When you speak of feasible resolutions, while as coach at Purdue, I called you on two occasions actually asking about players' eligibility. And frankly, as a coach and as guys that I recruited, these two guys, I asked you, I just want to get them eligible. They deserve to play. And I'll never forget you said to me, the quickest way to do it, to resolve this issue, is to embarrass the NCAA and go to the press. Well, and that's true. And, and yeah, it, it's, it's remarkable that it most, yeah, well, most, of, most of the cases that I've handled ha- have involved really sort of a, a ridiculous application of NCAA rules to uh, a 17-year-old or an 18-year-old. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things that you can't get any answers from the NCAA on is if problems occur when a young man or a young woman is 16 years old, are you going to punish them because some adult has potentially done something uh, impermissible in the eyes of, of the NCAA. Uh, it's totally inconsistent with the responsibility of the schools and, and, and public education, private education, to look after the well-being of the individual. Uh, it's more about how do we punish them, and eligibility is, is the way they punish, or lack of eligibility. Mm. That's deep stuff right there. We could do about a three-hour show just on that. But, again, that the NCAA has no responsibility is something that really rings in my ears. Natalie, if you can tell me where you see some hopeful progress in your daily work, and do you see substantive change happening in those areas? Well, from my perspective, um, from a mental health that that's the daily work that I do with athletes. And I think what is promising is that more and more people, particularly coaches and, and parents, are seeing the need. A lot of times when we think about um, mental health professionals working with athletes, we think about performance enhancement. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. we don't think about um, the issues, the actual mental health issues that athletes, just like all of us at one point or another, have, whether it's substance abuse, depression, anxiety, you know, things like that. And I am hopeful. We have a long way to go. Um, but I am hopeful that more and more people, particularly organizations, universities, see the need for mental health professionals to be working with these athletes. How much um, do you see any dissipation in the stigma around depression for athletes, especially athletes in contact sports or really any sport? I mean, I was a cross-country runner and I wouldn't have ever wanted to admit that I was having a problem like that. You're supposed to be tough. You're supposed to be gritty. Do you see much opening there? Um, I think it, that was one of the reasons um, I started the organization, the One in Four Project, to really fight against the stigma in the sports community. 
I think that we have a long way to go in fighting that. Uh, In society, we already have an issue with talking about mental health and mental illness. And in the sports community, it's that much tougher because, like you Mm -hmm. said, you have to be tough. You have to shake it off. Asking for help could be a sign of weakness. And it could could get you off the starting lineup or something like that. Absolutely. You're viewed differently if you have to see Mm -hmm. someone about an issue. So... I think that um, some organizations, some universities are being more proactive and and looking at things in a different way. But I'm not satisfied at all with what needs to happen as it relates to mental health with Mm -hmm. student athletes. Yeah. And and we'll talk some more about these kind of cultural issues, the culture of sport, especially sports like football here in a minute. I think it's really interesting what you said, too. Every team I've been on has a sports psychologist and is just paid for. I mean, yeah. and is constantly talking about performance, performance, how to be your best, whereas maybe not talking about your deficiencies in other areas just to get you to Or uh, your needs. Level. Your, your needs. needs. Or coping. We've, we've had coping. Yeah. several players through the years who, you know, because I'm a pastor, they would come and talk to me. And they really, you know, they really, and I would help to kind of refer them out to some other resources too because some of them were really suffering um, and they needed some professional intervention and they were really scared of what would happen if if that became mm-hmm. common knowledge. Even with this guy sitting right here next <laughs> to me um, and he's a pretty understanding guy, but it's a tough, it's a tough culture to... To have a problem like that in. There's a lot of fear mm-hmm. with it. Absolutely. Yes. yes. So, Bob DeMars, you have been working so hard on this documentary, and I know you, you're working on a, now another documentary. And talk to us a little bit about that process for you, what kind of, you know, kind of growth and awakening you've continued to have as you started to build on the turning point you told us about a minute ago. And are you getting more jaded or are you becoming more hopeful are you seeing any openings are you seeing any changes i'm i'm becoming more hopeful um i think public perception has really started to change you know speaking to some of the things natalie was talking about uh, i think we're starting to enter into a safer space with mental health um you know with um robin williams suicide i think public has started to change the way they're looking at some of these topics Mm -hmm. you know if you have a bad heart or a broken arm Nobody says, you know, that's not a big issue. But if you have a chronic problem with your brain, there was, there's definitely been, um, you know, a, a disassociative nature that people have with the topic. And I think mental health is coming to a safer place. And the, thing, the problem with athletes is we're very prideful by nature. You know, we've done things that most people haven't or we've overcome things that people couldn't imagine doing. And to admit that there's something wrong with what most people misassume is is a part of your identity Mm -hmm. is a really difficult hurdle to overcome. And that's actually one of the things that's addressed in the film. Um, I was diagnosed with panic disorder about three months before I started making the film. And I actually didn't make the connection to um, the the head injuries in football. It wasn't until I started doing the research and I talked to Dr. Cantu and Dr. McKee and Kristen Winsky and I started realizing, oh, wait a minute, because I don't don't, don't have a trigger. I don't have something that I don't hear a bell. Like a lot of people that have the condition I have, they have some type of trigger Mm -hmm. because it's related to a trauma, whereas my brain can just start malfunctioning out of nowhere. 
mm-hmm. you have to ride it out. And it, it, first time it happened to me, it felt like somebody had slipped me a drug because it was mm-hmm. something that was very um, that something that happens to you. And I know several guys I played with that have this condition, mm-hmm. and they don't want to talk about it. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping that by talking about it myself, that it can open up. Uh, people and offer them strength to be a little more open about that because when we started this film it really became about trying to change the system you know we actually created we spent nine months creating a health plan Uh, we did all these things now this is in the movie uh we couldn't get an insurance company to pick it up um but the the film ended up being really about visibility on these issues Mm -hmm. and we're now kind of working on a sequel that's going to maybe focus more on accountability Mm -hmm. and trying to shine a spotlight on the schools that are doing the right things (laughs) and to maybe publicly shame the schools that aren't doing the right thing Mm -hmm. um because i said public perception perception is shifting when we started this documentary a lot of people were against what we were trying to do a lot of people misassumed that the documentary i made was about paying athletes that's the topic that everybody wants to jump to when i think that if that's a step in the process it's the last step Mm -hmm. there's a lot more academic medical and even financial rights that come before that um you know the academics there needs to be remedial soft step ups for a lot of these guys that aren't prepared to be college students there's you know these guys that come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds if you look at any of the correlations they may be reading at a much lower level, and they're just tossing them in the frying pan to see mm-hmm. how they survive. And if they pan out athletically, they find a way to keep mm-hmm. them eligible, as we saw at North Carolina and other schools. But if they don't, they use that as an excuse to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's deplorable because the schools have a responsibility because they knew what this kid's level was when they accepted them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, the concussion um, you know, education, but also sub-concussion education is extremely important mm-hmm. um, because it's not just the concussions you have. It's Amen. the repetitive blows to the head. You're having nine to 1,500 um, sub-concussions for an individual per season. So if you stretch that out over the length of a career of Pop Warner High School, college, and even pro, you're talking tens and twenty thousands of these hits. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think people are educated in this process. And one of the cool things that's happened, um, there's, there was a $70 million concussion lawsuit that the NCAA uh, settled on. And that money was going to, uh, was essentially earmarked to go to let players assess the damage under their brain and what would have happened is because we've seen this with different settlements in class actions with the ncaa before is that money would have been earmarked and it would have never been used and would have gone right back to the same place it came from and the name plaintiff in the case adrian arrington um you know guy who's on medication suffers you know three four seizures a day can't take care of his family um you know he's actually coming out to the screening tomorrow and Hmm. he I, i got him a rough cut of the film and the next day he fired his attorneys and they rejected mm. the settlement. Mm. So we're, you know, the film, even though it hasn't officially been released and come out yet, um, awesome. it has started to have an impact. So we're starting that's to awesome. see some bright spots that are coming through. And I think it starts with public perception because that's where the shaming of ultimately comes mm-hmm. from. Because mm-hmm. the boosters support these programs and winning programs cross pollinate all programs at every level and especially at fundraising. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to the alumni. And the more we can educate parents that are, whose kids are going to college and the alumni that are supporting these athletes, because we don't want sports to go away. There's so many great things about it. But that's what we do with things that we care and we love about as we push them to be better. Yeah. <clears throat> Two things that I think were, a lot that you said there was incredibly important. Two things that really struck me is trying to raise the awareness. Recently, Marsha and I spent some time with some engineers on this topic. From and Purdue. I, from Purdue. And I think the awareness is being raised because it's not a matter of opinion. These are engineers that have data 
They have science. If you look at it and become aware, there's no argument. It's math, and it's a problem, and they can show it to you. I know it really resonated with me seeing that. Having been a coach for 26 years, frankly, there's a big part of me that didn't want to believe it or didn't want to think that it was as bad as it was. But when you see the math, the science, you can't dispute it. The second thing that you hit on that I think is really important, and I know Bob will talk about this at some point as well, is parents. That maybe while the NCAA prohibits the powers that be sometimes from speaking to these student to, to the athletes in a manner, m- maybe the way to get to the athletes is before they get to the NCAA, and that's through the parents. Maybe the recruited high school athlete is the one that needs to gather this information as much as possible before they get to college. I don't know if you had a comment on that. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, when the coaches are in the living rooms across the nation, uh, if you look in the blind side and Sandra Bullock's answering the door to Lou Holtz and Nick Saban (laughs) and all these coaches are coming in, they're essentially traveling salesmen, okay, and they're doing whatever they can to get the valuable player to commit, and they're promising parents is, we're going to take care of your boy. And what they mean by that is if we're going to give them an education, and if they're hurt, we're going to take care of them. Those are the two things that parents care about the most, and those are the biggest empty promises that most coaches make when they're on that recruiting trip. And and players need to be educated on the realities of what their school faces because there's no guarantee, there's no law, there's no NCAA rule that says the school has to take care of you. In fact, it wasn't until April of 2014 um, that a school was actually allowed to help an athlete with their injury beyond being at the school. Before that, it was actually an NCAA violation. Um, So a lot of people aren't even informed about what their rights are or that their scholarships may only be for a year. Um, You know, but we've seen academics have started to shift the discussion, as you said, and the Ivy League system, you know, they just recently cut out tackling. Um, I don't know if that's the right solution. I think there's going to be a lot of solutions that come to the forefront. And, um, you know, minimizing contact practices, I think, is a huge one. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, what I'd like to see is schools start competing for athletes with rights yeah. rather than bigger stadiums or um, championship promises and things like that because those are the things that kids think about. And the reality is is they're naive because a lot of these kids think that they're going to go pro, and they're not. they're not. And so they don't have that focus of academics and putting that first. And unfortunately, neither do the coaches. They're just saying what they need to say. Let me ask you this, Bob and Bob and Natalie. Do, is a player – have the most strength as a high school prospect, is that the time to negotiate some of these things that you're saying? Well, well that that's the greatest potential. But the reality is uh, we, we live in a culture where the recruitment process and the announcement on National mm-hmm. Signing Day, uh, and when, when you look, as Bob mentioned, uh, the socioeconomic background of Lots of the D1 football and basketball players, you know, they're all wrapped up in this this entire uh, culture of I'm signing with Alabama or I'm going to Tennessee or or wherever. And, you know, truthfully, how many people would negotiate a $100,000, $200,000 contract for services that potentially – included serious permanent injuries uh, and the like without a lawyer helping them negotiate it. Mm -hmm. But 
how many how many kids on National Signing Day mm. actually had uh, a qualified advisor there to say, you know, you don't have to sign a national letter of intent, or ask them if they're paying uh, the full cost of attendance, or am I getting four years instead of just one year committed? Mm-hmm. And and the problem is, we are we have become such a sports saturated society that when these kids most need advice and counsel, the system, both mm-hmm. practically and by NCAA rules, precludes them from having it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think a player ought to be able to have an agent at whatever point in time he or Amen. she uh, feels that they need one. Coaches. Everybody else in the world can have one. That's right. Why can't the player? Coaches have agents, and, you know, they love them agents when it's their agent we we didn't love agents we didn't have an agent (laughs) well well, we did first but we did first spell but our position changed on it that's a another radio show (laughs) (laughs) well when you're sitting there and you're you're 17 years old and you're signing that letter of intent on february 2nd nationally you know you're in competition with a lot of people to get a scholarship Mm -hmm. and some kids most kids don't have multiple scholarship offers so they're just trying not to rock the boat Mm-hmm. And the same thing even when you get to the college level. College players really do have the most power, as we saw with Missouri, whether you agree with the politics yes. behind that situation yes. or not. They showed that they really do have a lot of power. But what happens is right before the season starts, they put all the players into a room, and for about three hours you spend three hours signing documents. Mm-hmm. Okay, You renew your scholarship. Um, you actually There's a life insurance policy that you sign every year. You have to name your beneficiary. I remember all these things. I saved some of these documents. And like if you get lose a pinky, it's like six thousand dollars all of your body parts are itemized okay and and nobody's reading any of these things okay they're just signing it you know just like when you're doing that new terms of service agreement on your iphone it's like you're just signing it and getting it over with and moving on to the next page because who wants to be cooped up in this room for the next three hours but there's no representation Mm -mm. and there's nobody interpreting any of these rights Mm. to these players and there's nobody in the room that truly has the interests of the players at heart. And again, we are a coaching family. We are a football family that truly loves and cares about players. John was a player's coach. But still, there are some conflicts of interest. There's some things we we can love them as much as we can love somebody, but there's still times when their interests and our interests may conflict. And there's nobody in the building that represents their interests, and they're the ones who need to be able to have their interests represented because they're they are just coming into their own consciousness about who they are and what their rights are. I'm I'm really interested in in the hopeful signs that you see because for me Missouri was a hopeful sign, and I think one of the biggest cat- catalysts for change is gonna be when players start to ask questions. And start to say, wait a minute, you mean helmets could be better and y'all don't have them? Wait a minute, you mean no contact practice could really change my life and my future? Uh, okay, we want no contact practice. You know, just informing and how hard it is to get players to shift their mentality away from, I'm just a good soldier coach. I'll do whatever you tell me to. I'll be there at this time. I'll do this. I'll do whatever you say. For the team, for the team to think about, well, you know what? I'm a part of a business and I'm a commodity in that business 
And so how am I going to make sure that I protect myself? It's but, it's a different it's a different atmosphere when you think of it as a business. But, but it's unrealistic to expect 17, 18, 19-year-olds, yeah. particularly if they come from a more disadvantaged background, to have those sorts of uh, concepts mm-hmm. as they're going through this process. And while I, I agree that it, perhaps we should start with parents, who's going to be the people reaching out to the parents That's the when they're 15 mm-hmm. or 16. Right. Yeah. I mean, and you know, and how many parents want to hear it? I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're so excited about right. They have the Johnny, same yeah. mentality. Yeah. yeah. Some of the parents have the same hopes and dreams that the young athlete sure. does as well. I mean, Natalie, do you hear parents asking critical questions when they're, when their son or daughter is having trouble? Do they say like, what, what in the heck? happened you know i thought these i thought my son was taken care of or i thought do you see a lot of kind of critical awareness coming there's not a lot of awareness and and that's where you know i really see when we're talking we're having this conversation i think about advocacy and educating Mm -hmm. and you know like you said bob well who's doing that who's going to do that in particular areas where the the focus may not be um looking at after they sign or what that means. But, you know, what I see is after things have happened mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. what to do now. How do we get them back playing? How do we repair the damage that's been done? And mm-hmm. what I really want, you know, and that's what we talk about, which is intervention. And I want to see more prevention work yes. where we do programs, we educate the families, we educate the, you know, even though they're 17, 18, 19, you know, that information isn't even being given, you know, so we can't even really say how uh-huh. a parent would respond if we don't even give them the information. Mm. Right. When they don't even know. Yeah. They don't even know it, you know, yeah. so there, there's a lot of disadvantages just not knowing. Yes. Well, so, it's, a, it's a sports culture first, and, and that goes with the parents, too. And, you know, going back to the movie The Blind Side, I have a problem with that movie because... Me, too. Because the movie opens up with Lawrence Taylor breaking Joe Theismann's leg, right? And at the end of the movie, this kid that they brought in on the street, they didn't bring in any kid. They brought in this giant kid, okay? And they got him to go to their school, right? Mm-hmm. And he goes to the school, and he creates value, and he's in the NFL. And the, and the last line of the movie, she says, thank you, Lawrence Taylor. Thank you, Lawrence Taylor. And it implies uh-huh. that this kid didn't have any other value than being a left tackle. Yeah. And it to me, it negates everything that being a college athlete is supposed to be about, which is academics first. And mm. so by the time kids become educated on what their rights should be, they're out the door. Yeah. I mean, And I they rem- usually become yeah. educated because something happened bad. Something went wrong. Right. And then they're like, oh, now I see what's really going on here. And it's too late. Right. And they don't want to rock the boat. I mean, I, I mm-hmm. remember I had Reebok flip-flops that I threw away because USC had a Nike deal. Mm. I thought I was going to get in trouble for wearing, like, <laughs> Reebok flip-flops, you know. And, and But that's the mentality. You're mm-hmm. scared because once you're at that next level, you're then competing again. Yes. And everybody's a blue-chip athlete. Yeah. And you, if you can not play just because the coach doesn't like you. I mean, there, there's that's a lot right. of politics that come into play. Oh, yeah. And nobody wants to stick their neck out. That's right. Right. They want to keep their head down and keep working and do what they're told. And some of these guys, unfortunately, um, are deplorable people. There's there's an old boys network that exists in the coaching world. And some of the coaches that I've been around are some of the best people in the world. And I've been around some of the worst human beings you could possibly imagine. Tell us about it, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I, I commend you guys you know, immensely, though, because 
I couldn't find a coach to be in the film. Okay, wow. and 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 I think that speaks well, volumes. We know about, you soon enough. I know, I know, but I think it speaks volumes about what you guys are doing now with this radio show. I think mm-hmm. it's really important. I think mm-hmm. it's um, we need advocates that are in the system in order to change the system. Um, otherwise, everybody says, "Well, you don't know the system. We know what we're doing." And it'll be hard to find them in the coaching ranks because the sports culture affects players a certain way and makes them good soldiers. With the coaches. They're getting paid. And as I said to John, in the, in the last several years, I've come to see his salary as hush money. <laughs> and, um, you know, now that we're not getting it, the salary anymore, I'm not going to hush. So we're going <laughs> we're to we're keep talking. So let's move, friends, to our halftime stretch. I'd like to start with a nostalgia question, and I'll start with you, Natalie. Okay. What was your favorite sport to play growing up? Now, I don't know if this is a regional thing, but I don't know. Do you guys know about Piggy? Is that is that just... <laughs> was that like Is that a Chicago? Yeah. Piggy? <laughs> Piggy? Okay. So so it's, maybe it's a Chicago thing. Tell us about it. Okay. It's it's softball and a bat. And, and so a group of kids, and you have to yell out, you know, Piggy 1, Piggy 2. So if you're Piggy 1, you're the batter. If you're Piggy 2, you're the pitcher. Uh-huh. And so the pitcher pitches to the batter, and um, if you catch the ball... With one bounce, you get a bat or or, or a fly, okay. and so that was mm-hmm. kind of our thing growing up in our neighborhood. That Piggy, fun. yeah, softball. So y'all did it after school and yeah, stuff. Yeah, summer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. That sounds fun. Piggy <laughs> one, Piggy two. Yeah, there you All go. Right. <laughs> Bob Demars, what about you? Uh, Piggy was my second favorite. Sport. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, my first, my I grew up playing basketball. That was my mm. love. I would go and practice five hours a day after school. Mm. I loved it. And then I, I went from like four eleven to six four in a year and a half, and I lost all movement ability. For, <laughs> I used to be an amazing dancer. I mean, there was just all of this coordination just went out the window. And uh, the you Lord know, giveth and the Lord taketh away. He done took it. And uh, so I am no longer a great basketball player. I still the, the dancing ability came back, believe it or not. Oh. But, uh, I loved I loved basketball, and I still loved watching him. All right. Okay. So basketball and and interpretive dance, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Nice. So Bob Orr. Well, and, and you, uh, we just need to issue a caveat before that. Of course, cross country was your favorite, <laughs> but you're not going to say that because, well, I don't know why you're not going to say that. <laughs> well, I didn't. I didn't start cross country <laughs> until uh, high school, but okay. I, I'd have to be very conventional and say baseball uh-huh. and. And the radio listeners perhaps cannot tell that I'm far and away the oldest person in this room. (laughs) And when I was playing Little League Baseball in the little town I grew up with, you tried out. And if you didn't make the team, you didn't play. And when I was 10, I tried out and didn't make it. When I was 11, I tried out and didn't make it. And then actually I got glasses. And you'd be amazed how how much better a baseball player I became when I could see the ball. But but I loved baseball. I had a great coach. And uh, we really, everything from cutoff plays, all the nuances of the game, uh, I loved. And I continued playing slow-pitch softball up into my 60s. We had a Supreme Court team that... uh, uh, You know, which, you know, normally you didn't get members of the Supreme Court out in a City League softball game. But but I loved it. But the line drive started coming back a little little faster than uh, 
my old hands could get up, so I decided to retire. The softballs are not soft. No. Yeah. Anyone's ever taught. I quit Little League when I was eight, and somebody had a pickup game. I'm standing in outfield for the first two minutes where I quit, and a pop fly comes out of me. And the sun, I had no hat. And and now if you could give someone a million dollars to see if they could stand there and let a ball hit them in the face from that height, nobody could do it. But that's what happened. It hit me right in the face. And, you know, luckily I broke my nose before, but I was like, that was the least softball that ever hit me in the face. But see, 12 sure. inches is a hard softball, and 16 inches is the it's soft. It's bigger. What did you play piggy with? What? The, the, the 16. The 16. Okay. Right. Okay. Hard ball hitting you in the faces. Bob Orr, what's your today? What's your favorite sport to play? Well, it's got to be golf because mm-hmm. at my age there aren't many sports left. <laughs> uh, I now you I might love say golf. Fishing, yeah, fishing. Well, I, that's that's Up a there. close second. I, I, I will say, but now I mean I've played golf since I was twelve, not particularly well, but it is a lifetime sport, sure. and and I've. Thoroughly enjoyed because you get to go different places, you meet different people. Every day is a different day. There are life <laughs> skills to learn, even at my age. And so I would have to say golf. Natalie? Well, does professional band count as far as. <laughs> we can count it here. <laughs> now, no I do fish also. You mean so standing up to cheer and then exactly, sitting down? Yeah, maybe. Squats. Yeah, that's that's about <laughs> all that I do at this point. <laughs> that counts. For okay, sure. all right. I count uh, as playing. I count playing the radio as mute being a musician. <laughs> okay. So we can there count we being a fan as being an athlete. Thank you very much, Bob Demars. Today, what's your favorite sport to play? I'm with Bob or golf. You know, golf. Well, first of all, I think it's the only sport I can play anymore. My, <laughs> I'm missing ligaments in both my knees, and uh, I just I can't put that type of impact. So I can't do the same type of running that I used to be able to do. Uh, but I, there's nothing better than shutting your phone off for four and a half hours, and especially in a city like L.A., you don't see a lot of open space. Mm-hmm. So you can just you know smell the grass. Even if you're having a terrible day on the golf course, it's better than, than any other day <laughs> than you're not on the golf course. Amen. Mm-hmm. Amen. Bob DeMars, we'll stick with you. If you could be a world-class athlete in any sport, what would you choose? Wow. It would... <laughs> It would probably be golf or, uh, <laughs> you know, but I mean, I think it would be tough with the pressure. So I, I part of me wants to say darts is crazy because <laughs> I'm starting to look much more like a professional dart player these days. And those guys enjoy beer. And you, I'm like, if you if you ever go to Europe and you watch professional a dart, dart it's actually pretty amazing sport. And I've seen close matches and I'm, I don't even play darts. I don't even shoot darts, but I watched it once. I was like. That's an amazing thing to be a professional at. You want in. I want in. I want some of that sponsorship money. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Bob Orr, you could be a world-class athlete at any sport. Well, following on uh, Bob's dart uh, uh, story, curling. uh, You know, that's what I've always wanted to do. No, seriously. No, I don't want to be a world-class curler. I'm not not even sure how you become one. No. You know, like I said, golf, you can play all over the world. You can play at most any age. My goal is to shoot my age. If I can live long enough, I'll do it. So, uh, uh, yeah, golf. Natalie? For me, it would be uh, tennis. Uh, I'm a huge tennis fan. Um, I'm 5'5", so 
I could not compete with the tall women mm-hmm. today, so I have a serious serve and volley type game. <laughs> um, but yeah, definitely, I, I love to. Cool, cool, Amazing. I like it. Thank you so much, Bob Orr, Bob DeMars, and Natalie Grays for this rich conversation about sports justice. Of course, we're just getting started, uh, and we're looking forward to more with you all on part two on Going Deep about sports justice. And thank you to WBAA, our local public radio station here in West Lafayette, and to Erica Young, our sound engineer. Thank you, Erica. Yes, thank you, Erica. And remember, you've been listening to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century. We're Team Shoop. You can find us on shoopsgoingdeep.com. Follow us on Twitter at shoopsgoingdeep. And you can subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes and SoundCloud. We'll see you next time on Going Deep.